Hello there, my friends. This is Sage Bernardo, and I am back. It's been a while. It's been long, and I'm here. This episode uh, was actually recorded last year uh, in November, and um, a few things happened, and I couldn't get it to uh, get on the air. But um, I had some time to work on it, and uh, this is going to be season two episode one and I didn't see any better way to start the season with one of my favorite people in the world he is the co-founder and the drummer of one of the biggest rock and roll band in the history Dire Straits so I hope you will enjoy the conversation I had with Pick Withers and um, more are coming so enjoy and have some fun. Hello, my friends. This is Sage Bernardo, and I am the owner of Bernardo Effects, and I'm the host of this podcast show, It's All About the Tone. Today is November 26, and it's a Thursday. And today is a good day for two reasons. One, here in America, we are celebrating Thanksgiving in a few hours. The second good reason is because my guest, he is a a rock and roll Hall of Famer. He is one of the best drummers I've known my entire life. He is one of the original founding members of one of the greatest rock and roll band on planet, Dire Straits. He is a wonderful human being. And he agreed to say a few words with us today. Mr. Pickwitters, how are you? Well, I'm fine, Sage, but that's quite a, quite a build-up. <laughs> Thank you very much. You're welcome. You know, I speak <laughs> only the truth. I, I speak only the truth. But I have so. to <laughs> How are you? Broke. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I thought I would be quite blasé about it. Oh, but I was quite upset when they broke it. You know, the, broke the what? I didn't hear the first. My little rock and roll uh, statuette. Uh, know, who broke it? it? It was knocked over. You know, you know, one of the grandkids knocked Aww. it over. Uh, I thought. Prior to that, I thought, well, it's just, you know, it's just a silly award, but I was quite upset. It's okay. I've kind of patched it together, but, you know. Well, but guess what? Your name is going to be on the list forever. So if you have a statue or not, your name is there forever. Yeah. So that's what counts, you know. I'm not too worried about it. It's just, <laughs> just interesting aside, you know. Right, right. So, you know, let me let me do this. Um what I normally do with all my guests, we kind of like go back uh, in history, kind of like, you know, where they came from, uh, where they grew up, kind of the music they listened to, and we just go from there. So let me ask you this. The first question is, uh, where did you grow, uh, grow up and, and and what kind of music did you listen to uh, as a kid? Yeah, I, I, I was born in Leicester, which is... a uh a city in the middle of the country, in the middle of England, okay. 1919, in the late 40s, you know. Um, it was. A, I always try to explain to people how kind of 
isolated the existence was in those days, you know. We had the people didn't have televisions. It wasn't the normal course of events to have television. That came later in the 50s. Right. Um, so the main access to anything outside of your your local sphere was just um, was um, just what was it? Um, it was uh, radio? just the radio. Radios, you yeah, know, the old just, the old dial radios. Friends, but it was a very it was a very limited kind of uh, experience initially, you know. Right. My first my my first musical sort of encounter was to to I would hear a marching band, a military band, marching around the neighborhood. Okay. Every, the first Sunday of the month, and. Uh, Again, back in those days, it was much easier to spontaneously walk out the house because we lived in an environment where people didn't lock their doors. Right. And everybody pretty much had the same the same houses, you know, in a very uniform English kind of what we call a terraced house environment. Okay. So I, I wandered off and just followed them. And in the end, this was a, a boys' brigade band. It was similar to the Scouts, the Boy Scouts. Which oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. Similar sort of organisation, you know, right. uh, for, for young people, and you could uh, you could do all sorts of things in the boys' brigade. You could uh, just be in the band. You could learn wayfaring, camping, first aid, do PE. It was a kind of extracurricular activity away from school. Yeah, right. Outside right. of school, and right. I eventually, got a a drum to be in the. To be in the band, I joined this organisation. Okay, it's quite an interesting story because uh, the first year I got, I got, I kind of got my very austere uniform. It wasn't a big deal, but um, can I join the band, please? And he said, "Well, everybody wants to join the band, David. You know, you've got to, you've got to march behind for a year." So I did that, and okay. then I, I yes, yeah, come join the band now. I want the drum. Well, they all want to drum. You know, you have to blow the bugle for a year. Huh. So I did that. Okay. And all the time, this in, in tandem with this is going this realization that I, I wanted a drum kit for for um, from my parents for Christmas. Okay. Uh, there was a bit of a problem there because uh, again, it was a very similar experience for all of us in this kind of my generation that mothers tended to make the executive decisions. Fathers just put the money on the table. Okay. And uh, the answer was no. I think there was a fear of uh, the consequences, playing drums, antisocial, the neighbours. But it wasn't open to discuss. The answer was just no. Oh, what so, age was it? Do you remember? This was me 13 and 14. Okay. When I was 14, I eventually got got a, a drum and marched in the band. Okay. And then my folks just uh, acquiesced and got me a small a small drum kit for the... First Christmas thereafter, okay. but in the band, uh, I was very fortunate that uh, there were a couple of guys that were really—I think everybody looked to the, the, the kind of racy guys in the outfit—and they had a, a, a little, like a, a little what we called a combo in those days: two guitars and drums, okay. no bass because nobody had a bass. Huh. Um, access to equipment was very limited, you know, and also there was so. Because there was a natural wastage from people leaving to go to university, leaving the town. Can you can you just go now, please? Um, sorry, that's okay. It's just getting here. 
And uh, because there's a natural turnover, I was kind of parachuted into this combo. Okay. So, so I'd gone from being a military drummer to playing a drum kit in the social evenings that this organization had. So it was already made for me. We rehearsed in the hall, which belonged to the church, which was affiliated to the Boys Brigade. And the church, church hall where we practiced, happened to be just 50 yards from the only music shop of note in Leicester. Okay. So people used to come down and pay for their, what we called higher purchase agreements. You know, people, you never paid for anything outright in those days. You right, put right. a deposit down, entered into a contract, okay. and you paid, paid for your instruments to be, you know, you had the instrument, but you had to pay for it over the course of two or three years. People would come down on a Saturday prior to going to gigs, right. and they would come into the hall right, right. and see us. And uh, we would swap kind of, basically licks, I think, you know, which were just beats. And that's where my first beginnings were started, you know, and then... So you learned it I as you go? You learned Sorry. it as you go? Did you learn to play the drums as you go? Yeah, I mean, it was not... The only official learning I had was just from the, the, the military aspect. Okay. You know, there was... A, I played in this band, and they sh they showed you the basic rudiments, which gotcha. were just... Gotcha, okay, yeah. Rolls and rolls and paradiddles. Just right. the basic... Just, you know... Yeah, the, mar like the marching... The, the marching uh, rolls and... Yeah, yeah, and it was a bit bit stiff, you know. Well, it didn't swing like American bands swing. Right. You know, it was very, you know, Teutonic almost. The, yeah. But nevertheless, it did get me started. And the band, the band master was really an enthusiastic guy, um, Mr. Bond. I remember him to this day. You know, he's Mr. Bond and uh, not James Bond. Yeah, what a name, right? <laughs> <laughs> and he's great. He had a cycle shop, but he was enthusiastic and. You know, when you listen to these um, stories on on the radio about how people got started, be it acting, music, dancing, right. you know, realizing some ambition, always in the background, there's some person that materializes, like a, a Mrs. Higgins encouraged me to do this. She she put me in the school play, and then it was like a a, a moment where you blossomed. You know, right. something happened, right. and to me. It was, um, I just liked playing the drums and there was very limited uh, influence around. We had a band called The Shadows who were popular, popular in those days. Are you talking about The Shadows with Cliff like, Richard? With... Yeah, yeah, yes. his backing band. I wasn't so keen on Cliff, but um, the band had their own kind of career in tandem with Cliff where they did almost, which it's almost the thing that's gone now, instrumentals. Yeah, right, right. Hank, Hank Marvin um, and the Shadows. Yeah, yeah that's it. That's it. Yeah. But it was a really solid little outfit. You know, everybody had a function. The drummer wasn't just what you call a beat drummer, uh -huh. because when you're an instrumental band, you have to have you have to have a bit, bit of kind of adventure about you. Maybe do you know something like uh, a rumba or something? Be a, maybe it might be a rumba. But as far as we were concerned, it was, it was all rock and roll of, of, of a certain right. style. Yeah. But you had to be quite uh, a bit more, you had to have a bit more flexibility and a bit more um, ambition in, 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 in what you wanted to play. You know, okay. rock is a very kind of restrictive things at, at times yeah. for a drummer. You, know, you, have right. to, you have to really beat it hard and, right. um, and you, you, dynamics tend to be not very prevalent, really. It's mm -hmm. just... It's just louder and louder. Right. Yeah. Yes. So, um, 
that that, that was that they were my beginnings and pretty quickly i um over a time scale of about two or three years i, I kind of evolved into what was probably the considered the second best band in leicester the first band were called uh, james king and the farinas and they be, they went on to be, be called family okay. who had a big hit with a an album called A Doll's House or something. They were very popular. Okay. In the they were first like progressive rock band without really being called as such at the time. Family, they were called. Would, would that be in the sixties? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that would be in mid sixties, sixty four, sixty five, sixty three. Okay. That's and the beat was always too. But, but when I was at school, I, I I was in different bands, and I, I remember distinctly. The guy who ran the band, I was always the youngest, which is always a comfort. You know, time is on my side. <laughs> yes. It does work right. You know, you well, I just do what I'm told, be here, come there, get here, you know, where right. are your drums? And, and you just set them up and you play and you don't take much responsibility for the repertoire. You just you just absorb. Right. Like a sponge, yes. you know. And uh, in the end, you know, maybe it's almost like a like a bird, you know, in the end you, be, you you learn how to fly. Right. You know, of your own yes. theme. But I remember distinctly, so you must come early from school on Friday. Fridays was always the day re new records were released in, in the UK. Always Friday. Huh. The little, the little 45 RPMs. Right, 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 yes. And it was the Beatles. Beatles were releasing what turned out to be I Want to Hold Your Hand. Okay. And we had to get to this guy's house and learn it. He went, he went to the shop. On his, on his bike, bought right, it, right. got the single, and we put it on the turnstile. We all listened and we learned it to be the first band to play it live in Leicester that evening at some kind of social club. Wow. It was were a phenomenon on any amount of levels, you know. Wow. Just forget about Sergeant Pepper and stuff. Yes. There was something going on from day one, from the kind of, you know, from the really almost manufactured side from it, Epstein with the suits and the woo Yes, yeah, yes. You know, oh, why? <laughs> I'm sure Lennon, Lennon really kind of would, would hate that that era because they, they, they were like different incarnations of the Beatles. Yes. But and what they'd done, they'd been to Germany already and, and that's what I ended up doing, going to Germany and playing, you know, maybe 10 hours a night in, in, in some case, not every night, but in some instances, 10 hours a night, you know, so you, wow. you, you, yeah. you learn, you learn yeah. a lot, you know, you have to, you can't just repeat yourself endlessly. Right. You have to learn new repertoire. And I just think I was, although at first it was a bit irksome, you know, I just felt, I felt homesick. I was 17 and, and I'd never been abroad before. Here I was in Germany, in Hamburg, which is one of my favourite cities. I think it's got something to do with that. It's like, you know, being, I don't know, just, just that, kind of moment when you grow up some of you your first time extended period away from home yeah you learn a lot about yourself you know and uh, yeah yes how to, how to kind of negotiate stuff Absolutely. you know but I, yes. there's a lot of stuff that i did in hamburg which um upon reflection uh, at the time i just felt oh that's what that was <laughs> Some of the places we played in, you know, they weren't, they weren't kosher, you know, they were, you know, hostess places. Yeah. And that's so green. It was just, it was 
I'm sure today yeah. when you're looking back and it's like, oh my lord, if I only knew back then. <laughs> <laughs> But I probably wouldn't have gone. <laughs> yes, probably. I mean, we played in this place in uh, Lubeck, which is like a little port, fishing port, I would say. Right. Uh, just north of Hamburg. It's a beautiful old place. I mean, I'm so upset now, but I didn't realize that Bach, you know, the great Johann Sebastian, yeah. he walked Lubeck because there was a guy called Boxster Uda who played the organ there with his, huh. what's it like? And the, the, the cathedral there, or, or I don't think it's cathedral, it's a Protestant church. So um, right. the, the church there is renowned for having an organ that Boxster Uda and Bach have played. You know, and this is just, when I'm 17, wow. It's not, you know. I'm so I was so uncultured and so you know. Wow. I'd love to know. We played in this club, and there was a guy there that just uh, who was the the kind of waiter, bouncer. Are you familiar with the time bouncer in America? Uh, no. Okay, uh, he's a guy that troubleshoots. If you get people that are in the bar, right? Causing oh, oh, you mean you mean bouncer? He, yeah, bouncer. Yeah, yeah, bouncer. Yeah, 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 he yeah. Yes. Not only the well, the authorities dubious, but he has the kind of presence, physical. Yes, of course. Yeah, big bouncers. Yes. To either be intimidating yes. or to actually enforce your removal. So this guy, I was, you know, we were playing with another band back to back, eight until nine. They played nine to ten. We played ten to eleven. They right. played twelve to one. We played two to three, and then the last spot was three until four in the morning. Wow. Next night we swapped over, so at least you finished at three, you know, but you started at eight, you know. So you understand what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. There's like eight, eight one at 45 minute yes. slots. Yes. And, in two, and because we didn't want to keep changing the equipment, we agreed to use the same drum kit, just change a couple of pieces, you know. Okay. And I was doing, I was playing, it was basically come to um, four o'clock or three o'clock or something. It was very quiet. But um, I, I could see that um, this guy, the, the bouncer guy, stroke waiter, stroke barman, who was having a conversation, which is all in mime for me because there's loud music going on. Right, this right. This lady. Right, right. In the corner, all by mime, and he's, she's obviously doing this mime. It's, you know, obviously what it was, it's been a bad evening, you know, outside on the street. Uh, But I, was, I, I didn't get any of it. I didn't get any of it. And then he just sort of said, uh, he just, she, she gave him some money and he just looked at it rather theatrically and went, <laughs> and she then sort of went, <laughs> and she just went, <laughs> quite, quite forcefully, you know, he was a brute. And uh, she then, and of course, I didn't know what that was at the time, you know. Right. But obviously, the working lady, he. Yep. Yep. He looks after her, and uh, he, yep. uh, well, of a fashion. I guess he was more than just a bouncer. Like Back in England, places were closing at 11 o'clock. You know, here's a place open until 4 o'clock. Wow. Wow. It's, you know, it's amazing, really, to, 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 to be taken from this rather 
restrictive environment in Leicester and just plonk there. But it's what the Beatles did, you know. And uh, yep. you, you, I don't know, you learn a lot. It, it, yes. It's like a lot of things. It, we say you can practice all you want, you know, and, and, and good on you, as we say. But there's no substitute for playing. To know? the real it's life, like of course. If yes. you train and train and train, but don't get to perform, yes. it's, it, it's just a, a waste of effort on any level you wish to, you know, expound upon. You know, be it, it's, it's like a, a boxer training, but never fighting. There comes a point where you're not going to learn anything. Right. You're just going to get very fit. Your technique is going to improve as a musician, right? But in an environment where you're playing with other people and all the stuff is going on, you're not learning anything. You know, you're yep. not learning how to uh, develop uh, some kind of uh, style. Yeah. How to play together. Yeah. How to use dynamics. Yeah. How to deal with different environments where the sound is probably not what you would like. Yep. You know, but you so you sort of go, oh, this is horrible. You have to. Somehow learn stagecraft. Yeah. Oh, this stuff. and this is what's happening today. People within the entertainment industry. Now we have all these what are called ready-made stars who are featured on some television program doing one song. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't let me let, don't let me get in there because I got my own I've opinion got, on that one. There. But 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 it happens not because it's, of what's. Yeah, it is so different, you know. Um, when you when you look at at, at musicians these days, and again, not all of them, but especially the younger generation, they think that becoming a superstar, um, you know, you 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 need to look a certain way, you need to have yeah. a certain uh, quality of a uh, uh, vocal if you're a singer, uh, and you have to be a certain age. And it's all because oh, of these. Nice. I, 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 I mean, if you look. Oh, yeah, I think your phone fell. There we go. We're good. Uh, because if you look at all the. Uh, um, most of the musicians that, that uh, win those, these shows, 90% uh, of them, you don't hear from them a year later. You know. Uh, you're back. Okay, I lost you there. Oh, you lost me? Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, Somebody tripped over a while. Do, do you remember where you lost me? So I'll repeat it again. Well, we were talking about um, these ready-made stars. Yes, yes, yes. Who don't have any stagecraft. Uh, right. And, and, you know, and, and, the, and the thing is, you know, they, they, first, of all, first of all, and this is something I've learned myself uh, when I was a kid. Watching uh, 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 rock and roll stars on TV, all you see is limos, a lot of hot women, and and party. So you have some sort of uh, of a picture in your head. Man, I want to be a, a rock and roll star because yeah. this is a fun yeah, yeah. life. And you don't realize that that it's not. You know, being on the road, it's a really hard work. It's a tough job. And all those glimpses of, of, uh, of shots that you see, of, of the glamorous, that, that limos and, and beautiful babes and parties, that's only 
a miniature part of the entire thing. And I believe that the, the younger generation of today, that's what they think it is. It's a lot of money, and I don't need to be a perfect musician because somebody's going to make me. And that's it. Well, we, we have that in this country, definitely, because I, I work with a, an engineer called Bill Legotier who's done a lot, a lot of stuff, and he's had to modify the way he works to, to guarantee a constant stream of employment, you know. Right. But yeah, he had phone calls from the managing executives in record companies. Hey, Bill, you know, it's great. I've heard the, the stuff. Um, um, it's really good, but I, I think we, th that song you cut with the boys needs another verse, you know, just, just to be sure. So that's the bill. Oh, that's great. When, when do the boys want to come in there? Oh, no, they don't want to come in. They want you to cut it and, and paste and it. Fix, and, and fix it. And just and just, just, just fix create it. another verse. Yes. And it's just bizarre. I, so I find that bizarre that people... But it's been coming a long time, all those kind of... You know. Well, I mean, we had it back in the 80s. I don't want to mention names, but, you know, we had we even had it in the 80s, some of those super groups that they didn't even sing. It was all lip singing and stuff like that. You know, you, you probably remember yeah. them. But, um, no, I mean, uh, live music is there. It's, it's always yeah. there. Yeah. It's, I, I mean, I, I, saw, I saw some stuff on YouTube of Dave, Dave Gilmore playing some Pink Floyd stuff. Yeah. With a really good band. I, I think he was the only kind of bona fide member of Pink Floyd playing at this concert, but he covered all the parts. Yep. And it was in Chile. It was only yep. about maybe about 10, 12 years ago. So so the people in this huge football stadium, they're not his first generation, the first generation of fans, you know, these right. are I, I surmise these are the children of the original Pink Floyd fans who have heard the records. Yes. Yes. And identify with them strongly. Yes. And you see these people singing the songs. Yes. Not like a pop concert, like reminiscing in the nostalgic right. kind of reverie of, you know, they were singing the songs because they meant a little bit more, you know, yes. Chile and yes. Pinochet and all that sort yes. of thing and the displaced people, you know, there yes. are lots of ghosts in yes. those countries. And it just meant so much more it is. to yes. these people. They were singing their hearts out yes. because it's a way of kind of um, they identify with the sentiments yes. in the song, you know. Yes. Us and Them is a great song, you know, and it's just a very simple lyric. I know, kind of, I know. It, it, transpo it, it transports well because it's, it's not, but it's quite profound. Yes. And yet the words are simple. Yes. And I, I, that, that's the kind of era I kind of identify with. And when I was... When I first played in a band that uh, played its own material, you know, as opposed to being a covers band, we played, majority of our stuff was all self-written by us. And it was the era of Free and King Crimson. Oh, yeah. And bands like Bullet and yep. Arthur Brown. And we were there on a sort of lower lower level because I identify with those people because they had a profile that sold records. Um, we didn't sell so many records, but it's a band called Spring. I was but just about era, to ask you about that, yeah. That, that era, it was, it was all vinyl, exclusively vinyl. CDs hadn't been invented. Yes. And the kids would walk along the street with a with a, an LP, and they wanted you to see what it was, you know, because right. it, 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 
identified strongly yes. with the sentiments or the style or whatever it was, you know. And now I liken it to the guys walking on the street with a skateboard. Yeah. <laughs> that guy's got something going on, you know. He's got a, he's got a pursuit, he has an activity. Right. And the rest of the kids are all on these phones. Uh, and it just breaks apart that uh, whatever it is that they're into, it could be a much better experience with, you know, some more appropriate sound reproduction system yes. but that's what we're dealing with now yeah so that's what we're dealing with we're dealing with people who are used to uh, everything being reduced to essence of and, and i don't i struggle with that I, it, I like the you know i like the full audio experience and you, you know, know I, I know what heart and soul goes into making some of those records maybe it could be you know construed as a bit self-indulgent at times but you know um, you know, I, I I don't know because you see the the uh, the, the big comeback of vinyl, and yes, there's a I'm, reason why. And I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you something else. It might be a breaking news for you or not, but but I've I've seen it years ago, and it's finally happening. But do you know that cassettes are coming back? No, I didn't know that. Oh, they're coming back big time. Yeah. Um, uh, 2019 was the first year for the last 30 years yeah. that the sales of cassettes worldwide were about mm -hmm. 30% of all the other media. And what are they playing these things on? Like, well, like a modern well, Believe it or not, uh, uh, there are some companies that start releasing back cassette decks like you know Tascam is having some yeah. Morant's having some and um, and 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 you can still find Walkman's you know uh, yeah. so but it's it's coming back really really uh, uh, it has a really great insurgence right now with cassettes and I thought I mean when somebody told me five years ago you know Cassettes are going to have a comeback. I said, yeah, I told him, listen, you, you nuts. There's no way. I mean, I can see vinyls, but cassettes, I don't know. And I mean, I don't know if you can see behind me, but there's a yeah, boatload. Yeah. Those are high quality. I mean, they're all high quality studio. Uh, and, 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 and about a year ago, when I dove myself uh, deeply into reel-to-reel and cassettes and I have a really high quality uh, uh, units to play them and record, I start doing the A and B between a, a, a CD and a reel-to-reel -reel or a CD with a really high quality cassette. And I don't care about other people, but I can hear the difference. I can yeah, definitely yeah. hear the difference. Yeah. The, 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 you might lose a, a bit of performance on a cassette eventually. With repeated plays, I don't know. Uh, well, you will, but guess what? You can re-record it and you can uh, uh, regain it. That's yeah, the cool yeah. thing about cassettes. But anyway, but you know, I mean, this is—you're right. I mean, the, the 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 newer generation is so minimized to everything has to be available right now, this moment, this second. And also, it's just the the information is irrelevant to them. Yes. You know. Just turn it on and turn it off. Yes. Does there seem to be any kind of identification with the artist where we would want to know who played who played on who I, played the guitar? Exactly. You know, like that. 
Well, remember like when we we what else he's done? Where was it recorded? Right. You know, when when um, we used to buy the vinyls. Artwork. Yeah, when we and, used and we to could work stuff with an LP as well in those days. Right. You know, but, you know, we used to open the vinyls and open the yeah. uh, the the gatefold and and looking at yeah. the information on you know yeah. uh, what studio did they play it like who played the drums who played the bass uh, who is the who is who is the producer you know yeah and today and to me that's all part of the process of identifying with a product you know so yes. you feel I don't know you just feel more kind of familiar with with the you know with the stuff and also sound in these days. I, I'm, I'm reduced now when I'm in the car to either playing CDs and if I listen to the radio, I just listen to uh, the, the BBC, which is British Broadcasting right. Corporation. Yes. There are a number of channels, probably any, anywhere from about eight, nine different dedicated radio channels. Right. Which tend to target certain kind of, you know, uh, dynamics of the, of the population. Right, right. But I listen to Three, which is a classical station. Yes. Uh, not exclusively. They did play some jazz, but I, but the reason I listen to it is it doesn't have compression. Yes. And I just can't listen to stuff anymore because I just I, I just can't penetrate it. You know, when I listen to it, I just can't penetrate it. It just seems like rather a big wall of sound with very little information on it. You know, it's just like a synthesizer. Oh, it's a drum. I can hear the drum machine and then... Oh, the ba that bass. Oh, that's a keyboard. Oh, that's a guitar. And then the the, the obligatory auto tune, you know, singing and, and everything compressed. And it just all tends to be one homogenous kind of uh, color. Yes. You know, yeah. And, and you know, one of the reasons is it's because um, I had an interview last week with the owner of uh, the. Um, National, uh, the national, uh, forgot their name. Anyway, they're, they've been since 69 over here in the U.S., and they were one of the first ones to manufacture uh, tapes. Yeah. So, so the owner, you know, he knows everything about analog and blah, 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 blah. And he, he told me something, and that phrase just stuck with me forever, and, and he's right. He said... Sage, our ears are analog. There's no digital thing in our ears. Everything is analog in your ear. So when you <clears throat> have an analog, uh, uh, I want to call it equipment in your in your yes. in your own body, and you're listening to an analog um, uh, media, it vibrates in a way that it sends you know it sends some sort of waves in your body, and you can feel it. You know, there, there yeah. there's some something happening when you listen to an analog recording compared to a digital, all computerized. The 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 feeling is completely different. It's absolutely different. And and it's well, yeah. I mean, I, I, my main beef with digital is that the majority of it, um, not not exclusively, but the majority of it is directly inject direct what they call direct injection into the soundboard. Yeah. So there's no air. Yeah. So you, everything's kind of uh, artificially manufactured. Ambient sound is, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. added. Right. And I think well, let's let's just have real ambient sound yes. so that people can identify with it being in a room and right, uh, right, right. It's just a it's just a different sonic experience to me. It is. And it just 
Absolutely, it's not, it is. It, it's not so readily available anymore because it, it doesn't fit the format that we have. Right. And maybe some resonates with the the, the the lives we lead. You know, you mm. go to the supermarket. Yep. <laughs> right. It's a very impersonal sound, but it's kind of a soundtrack of everybody's life now. Yep. You know, it's not Dago's bike if you don't go somewhere. Right. There's a kind of rack the tiller. You right. know, it's just right. all that all that stuff, that automation. It, it, it's it resonates with people a lot. You know. Right. Yes, you're um, right. And I think subconsciously, that's where it all comes from. Yeah. Yes. You know. Absolutely. And it finds a home in in our uh, an acceptance in our, our readily we readily accept it. Well, they do anyway, and, right. and and it's also a problem, the rejection that every generation has to have. You must reject your your um, your parents and and your the generation before yes. you must reject their values and have your own. Yeah. So there's always there's always that is going on as yeah. well behind it all. So you're right. It's very difficult to be categorically black and white about it. But I do. I really am. I'm. I'm I'm sad not because it kind of affects me in so, so much as it, it just affects other people. Like when I took my kids to see um, my two daughters. I, I was really a chauffeur. I didn't go. went to a concert when they were young. Um, there was a band called E17. I wouldn't have thought they were did much in America, but they had some hits in England and maybe Europe. And they were, right. you know, flavor of the month or whatever, and they wanted to see them. So I took them. And they came out very animated. Oh, what was it? What was it like? Oh, it's great, Dad. It was great. I said, oh, was there a drummer? Was a drummer any good? Oh, I didn't have a drummer, Dad. Oh, okay. Well, was there a guitar player? Oh, I didn't have a guitar player, Dad. Oh, my. No. Uh, oh, did they have um, Did they have any a, a band at all? He says, well, there's four of them, isn't there? He says, yeah, there's four of them, Dad. He said, well, what did they do? He said, well, they sang, and one of them played keyboards. I said, but but what else? What else did you hear? Well. I don't know, it sounded all right to me, Dad, you know. It's just, so yeah. there would have been drums, everything would have been pre-programmed before. Uh, yeah, yes, yeah. And yeah. I just think it's so sad, not not for me. They enjoyed it, so what's the what's the beef? My beef is that people go to that concert and they think, well, I can't sing, so but I like the look at those drums. Can I have a drum kit for Christmas, Dad? This guy had a red guitar, I loved it. Can I can I have a guitar for Christmas? You're right, Dad? yes. I like what yeah. that guy did on the boom, boom, boom. Anything, any little kind of yes. hook that yeah. Yeah. You know, brings you in. To, and it's just a very monoculture we have now. You, know, yeah. you sing, you dance. Yes. You dance, you sing. But you see, again, you, it, it, all, it, it all comes from those... Uh, uh, TV shows, you know, the, the X yeah. Factor and the uh, American well, we started, uh, talent and whatever. And, and, and also the oversouling, which I, I just can't. I, can't I mean, you know, that. I mean, there, there, there's some, there's some, uh, I don't want to say that it's all bad because there are some really great uh, 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 musicians and talented coming out from these shows. But you know what? It's maybe 1%. Uh, there's probably going to be two people in the entire 15 years of these shows that I can say, you know what, they made it big. You know, Adam Lambert is one of them. You know, with Queen, now that he's with Queen. Adam yeah, Lambert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's yeah. a talented, he is a really talented guy. Uh, but how many shows they had with number ones, you know, contenders, and, and, and 
you don't hear about them anymore. You don't know you nothing. There's nothing going on. But it's essentially a television show, and that's it is. that's the deal, really. Yep, it is. it is. It is. It's for in-home entertainment, and it's not the the the, the whole like, essence of it is to have people right. moving through it. You know, they're right, not interested right. in the careers are that important to them. Well, let me let me go let me go back to uh, uh, the, the real music before people are gonna kill me and say like, why yeah. are you talking about all the bad stuff? We want to hear some good stuff. Um, so I want to ask you something. I know that through the years people were bombarding you with dire straits, dire straits, dire straits, dire straits, and you know I want to I want to keep this maybe to last, and I want to actually talk about you because you've been involved. Um, before Dire Straits and even after Dire Straits with, with a lot of uh, bands or uh, uh, from what I read, you were actually the, uh, and I think it was before the Dire Straits, you were the house drummer for the uh, the uh, Rockfield Studios? Rockfield Studios, right? yeah. I was, yeah it, the timing was great. Um, I'd come back from Italy where I'd, I'd worked for three years in a proper, what I call a proper pop band okay you know and and uh, I came back and and fortunately I I had met a band in Italy uh, who they were just out for the summer whereas I was staying there permanently right they 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 were called the Doc Thomas group but by the time I hooked up with them in London after my after I came back from Italy they were called Mott the Hoople Okay. <laughs> so I went to see them in, uh, I didn't know any of this at all, you know. I went to see them in this basement flat in Chelsea and, and I was doing a lot of auditions and they recognised uh, an advert which I would never have responded to because it was an out-of-town number which I didn't recognise. Okay. And, and they recognised it immediately because they were from the neck, that neck of the woods where Rockfield was. So I ended up going down there and that was the, the band that it evolved into Spring. Okay. They were being managed by the two brothers who ran the studio. And the studio was then in its very embryonic stages, you know. There was paraffin heaters, you know, like kerosene heaters. Yeah, yeah. No <laughs> and a very levers-rich eight-track board. And it was all in old uh, farm buildings with, you know, kind of DIY... Uh, baffles for sound insulation and all okay. that sort of stuff. And so they were just really beginning to evolve into the studio that it became. And they never, ever advertised at all. It just became a word-of-mouth thing. Okay. It was just being, it just being the right kind of environment. People, um, it was in the days of ELP and Free and, you know, there's King Crimson, that kind of era. So I'm not saying they were all there, but right, that was right. it. Yes, you know, began to really be successful, and people went down there and stayed there. Okay. And because I was there, you know, and, and the, the artists were, as opposed to going home at night, they were they lived there. So I, I I got drafted in to do quite a few sessions just for percussion and things. And, okay. Because uh, they would probably have a drummer. Right. You know? But um, it was a great learning curve for me because it's when you when you play live you know you you develop a style of playing but and when you go into a studio the the the, the microphone doesn't lie you know it it, it just 
yes. safely reproduces yes. what you do. Right. And I think your is a much more kind of cute. They they edit out the, you know, the boo boo reel. Right. You know, that, that, <laughs> oh no 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 no! You come and listen to this tape you just did. Yes. You know you listen. Oh, it's it's a different world. It's yes. Now, is it? You yes. know, so you, you kind of learn on, on the job how to. Um, I don't know how to evolve into somebody who can play in time. Yeah. You know, I playing not with click, clicks hadn't been invented then, but I played with I, I did a lot of practice with a metronome. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, outside of the studio, but just to have just to be resident there, living there, and going out and doing gigs and coming back, we had um, we could set our stuff up and rehearse in there and record and do all sorts of all manner. It was just a real kind of uh, Fill it for me, okay. and the studio yeah. blossomed. You know, there were. I mean, after I left, it was, I think it also had a real, real successful period. It was stuff that I didn't, I wasn't privy to. Like the Oasis, yeah. they, they recorded that. Yeah. We did a lot of Bohemian Rhapsody there. Okay. The stuff I played, probably, I played with Robert Plant for a little bit after post, post Zeppelin. You know, we did the Big Log era. Okay. I, I did with him and uh, there were other people as well. Uh, Dave, Dave Edmonds? Uh, it's basically Dave Edmonds. Dave Edmonds, Andy Fell with the Low. Yeah. Uh, all sorts of people like that. And uh, some American producers who came over and played. Um, so let me, ask you, let me ask you this because I, I would like to include it on the uh, show notes after that. Um, do you have a list of, of those recordings that uh, I can include if people want to find it, listen to it? I can summon it up sometime. The, the last thing I did there was probably with uh, Chris Jagger, you know, Mick Jagger's brother. Yeah, he had okay. an album called Ventriloquist's Dummy, I think. Okay. I, think a, I, I did some stuff with him. I'll have to have a look and rejog my memory. Sure, okay. But, um, yeah, that would be great because I, I know was some about people. Three, three, four, maybe five years. So some of the stuff wouldn't would be percussion. Yeah. You know, played on a fog hat album. Right. You know? Right. These are acts that sometimes they're not very big in in England, but the fog hat were quite big in America. Apparently. Yeah. Yes. You know, so it's it's already a long time ago. So. Right. Okay. What what about the uh, what's the story with the John John Drummer Band? Oh, the John Drummer Band, yeah, yeah. that was I did an album with him, and that's that that's where I first met a guy called Dave Kelly. Okay. And uh, John Drummer was a bit eccentric by the time I kind of met up with him, but I, it was basically I don't know if their drummer he he was supposed to be the drummer. Okay. But he, he a little bit you know he, he's a bit erratic. You know, and his behaviour, he could wander off. He had, he, he had a, and he used to, used to drive around in a decommissioned London cab. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he ended up being a, a, an antiques dealer in in Belgium, you right. know, in the Dordogne, I think. But so I ended up playing the the drums, and 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 uh, they got Graham Bond was there. You know, the great Graham Bond yeah, yeah, yeah. from the great organisation with Jack Bruce, yeah. Ginger, but yes. he was there. And of course, he, it wasn't very long before he was not for this world anymore. Right. Died. He died in a, you know rather sad circumstances in London on the in, in on the underground. But right. he was there as well, and so he was drafted into 
to play um, play saxophone on something, okay. and then he actually, well, I've got a gig coming up. I'll poach this band. So I went off and played with him for a gig, which was just nothing in itself. But to to play with somebody who played with Ginger Baker and Jack Bruce, and somebody who I'd seen as a oh yes, teen, as a kind of callous teenager, right? It was just that he was, you know. He was getting that stage of his career where I think he was so unreliable as a as a human being that right. he, he just he just seized upon us to fulfill a commitment. He, you know, he had, so, to, he had to find. So on the John drummer band, were you the drummer of the band, or I played, I played a lot of drums on that? And I think so John Dummer. Were there any recordings, or it was just live? Yeah, there's recording out somewhere. I think I, I got. I think Dave sent me one recently. You know, it's. It's um, it's basically blues stuff. Right, right, right. Of a blues, okay. blues orientation. Would that going to be early seventies, mid seventies? Yeah, it'll be. It'll be it's got to be sixty-nine, seventy, seventy-one, or seventy-two. Okay. By which I'd, I'd sort of in seventy-three and seventy-four, I, I I was kind of hanging around, but the the band spring kind of fell apart, and there was some there was. Uh, floated an idea to have a house band okay you know but it, it, it only kind of it was me and uh, really one of my long most longest standing friends a musician friend called ray martinez he played he played guitar but he could play trumpet and stuff okay and there were that, that as far as the house band went and i was a bit disappointed with that Good. but when okay. it was first the idea was first floated to me it seemed great to me because i could stay with guaranteed wage I could stay in one place for a year, rent a cottage, and become a little, you know, little country boy, really. Yeah. <laughs> and I me down to the ground. I, I, I loved it. I got a dog, and uh, it was great. And I didn't have to worry about where the next gig was coming from because right, right. my basically flat, flat rate salary was guaranteed, and all I had to do was be available. Be available, right. So between sixty-nine, so between sixty-nine and nineteen seventy-two, if 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 anyone find any recordings of John Drummer Band, you are the drummer. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good. I would, if it's recorded at Rockfield, it would be me. It would, okay. There's only one. Okay. Uh, uh, what about? There's always, always the Spring album. There's always the Spring album, which was right. the main brunt of my work when I was down there, and that was. On the RCA Neon label. Right, yeah, that I remember I read about. What about um, Gary Fletcher? Yeah, b prior to that, I, I when I went to London, I, I, I played with a, ended up playing with a folk guy, Bert Jansch. Okay. Yeah, he's a, well, he, he, he's died now, but um, he was very much considered one of the great. Uh, acoustic folk guitar players of his generation, you know. And what's his name again? Bert Jansch. Okay, Bert. J-A-N-S-C-H. And I made a record with him called Rare Conundrum, which okay. is uh, still very, very... I have really fond memories of, of that album, you know. Okay. That's when I first left Rockford and went up to London to, to seek my fame and fortune, you know. Yeah, yeah. And... Uh, That was a, that was a really interesting time. Yeah, he was considered to be a great uh, exponent of the finger picking guitar. And, right. Uh, Paul Simon was around at that time. 
Bob Dylan was around at that time in London okay. doing these little clubs and stuff. Uh, and it was quite novel for him to to actually commission a band to play with him. Yeah, what year was that? Do you remember? That would be about 73, 74. Okay. Maybe 75. So there is an album recorded. An album called Rare Conundrum, which I, I played on. And uh, okay. it's got one of my dogs barking on it. <laughs> no, but it's, it's, there's a story to that. So I said, okay, can she get a credit? And they said, of course she can. And I said, can she be credited as on barking vocals? <laughs> Everything's always cute, but of course, the oh, record company. Oh, so, that's cute. Oh, look, somebody's, somebody's done a typo. That's not barking vocals, that's backing vocals. <laughs> and they changed it. They changed it to, you know, oh, which is a shame, so really. But she gets the credit, backing vocals, Mantha. Okay. So, and that's the credit on the album. It's all vinyl stuff, way before CD. Right, right, um, right. So. Maybe the guy. The guy who co-produced it was a guy called Rod Clements, who was in Lindisfarne, had been in Lindisfarne. Right. They were a big group in the in the early 70s. Okay. So now I have a question for you. Um, one of my favorite albums that you are involved in, um, and it's actually uh, happened during the first year of Dire Straits, but it's a slow train coming by Bob yeah. Dylan. And, uh, you know, me as a guitar player, um, I always love rhythm section. You know, to me, a rhythm yeah. section is the bare bone of the music. Uh, unless you're writing, you're writing uh, an instrumental of just one instrument, if you don't have a good rhythm section, I don't care how good you are, it's all rubbish. So... That album to me was the drums in that album was just thank you. Thank you. It, it just to me it just uh, uh, really give me the the chills. So can you talk about this album, the recording and your you know your your part in it? Well, it was it was really interesting because my first inclination was to kind of run a mile from it yes. because you know no never. No, Before that, there was blood on the tracks and uh, stuff that I really, really liked. So it was very, it, all of a sudden, it became very important for me to, to actually do it and to come out the other side right. with something that was, you know, comparable right. to that. Okay. But yeah, um, um, I think he came to see us play as Dire Straits at the Roxy in LA okay. just to kind of, you know, vet us, so to speak. And then we went to his um, office stroke rehearsal space in Santa Monica. And I think I played the tambourine. Huh. You know, he, he, yeah, and he just doodled on the piano. And, and I think, I don't even know if Mark had a guitar. I think he picked a guitar up. Right. And we just really just skirted around stuff. It wasn't, official, wasn't really an official rehearsal. It was just a kind of, you know, Almost like sparring in a way. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. When, when Muscle Shoals properly for, for the album, Wexler was there and he, yep. he Bob turned up with everybody, you know, like yes. the three gospel singers, yes. Tim Drummond, and uh, Bob, uh, Jay said, Oh, just send the girls back to the house, please. <laughs> you know, so he, come on, Bob, let's go and shoot some pool. 
Because it's obviously that obviously prior to this slow train coming, if you wanted to be on a Bob Dylan record, even if you were playing triangle, it wasn't going to be an overdub. You know, it was it was going to be you were going to be there and you're playing to play on on the Virgin tape. Wow! And if you, if you were, I, I, that's the impression I get. Because one time he, he when we I mean we were only there for ten days. Okay. So everything we did was all done and dusted in ten days. They did other stuff afterwards, but both Marks and my parts were all covered. Wow. In those, ten days, you know, the whole album. So. Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah, yeah, and and wow, and we had to, Wexler had to sort of press him on, on, concentrating on the tracks he wanted because it was vinyl, and and you only want twenty minutes aside. Okay. For the for the bass, just for the bass alone. Wow. And so it was this kind of concerted effort to 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 kind of make him commit to, you know, the songs that were on the album as opposed yes. to doing explorations with other songs because right. it was too much material. But he looked at me once and he, he, he listened to a playback. I think it was the reggae that the, the, the God gave name to all the animals. Yeah. He was listening to that. Okay. And it's all the stuff we listened to was uh, myself, Tim Drummond, Mark, Barry Beckett on piano, okay. and maybe Bob playing some form of guitar, you know. Okay. But it was always a vocal, always a very... Uh, they, they were the master vocals. That's right. the way he recorded. Okay. You know? Even if you're going to put organ on it, horns, the girls singing, you know, choirs. Right, right. The, the, the vocal you hear on the initial performance, that's the master vocal. He doesn't go back and overdub and, okay. you know, do it again or do it better or do it differently. Right. He commits, and I really appreciate that because that gives me something to... to, to to lock onto. Okay. You know, it gives you indication of where this the song is and its dynamic and its intensity or when it's, you know, when you're to back out and right. stuff like that. Right, right, right. Uh, so that was that. And it, cause so, so that's what we're listening to. We're not listening to, you know, guitar solos and uh, horns and the girls singing. We're just listening to the bare bones of the song. Okay. But it's still functioning. Right. Song. Yeah. I always think it's a good acid test. And he's going, you know, Big, is a... I'm used to making. Uh, he's, he's always very thoughtful, uh, and and very minimal in his conversation. Um, I'm used to making. Uh, I'm used to making records like people make um, home movies. That's that's the way I, I, I record. And then he looks at the speakers again. Still doing his playback. He says, "This way. This way is more professional." made all these albums and it's just such a kind of odd thing to say but it's you know he was really genuinely uh, enchanted with it you know because he, right. he wanted everything to be there and I think I think that's I think maybe in the back of his mind I know he'd always wanted to have an album produced by Wexler essentially yeah but Wexler at the time was getting on a bit and he he he, he liked working with Barry okay Wexler was a kind of executive producer, you yes, know. Right. He came alive when vocals time yep. came alive, and he he would interject if he felt felt that when you were laying something down, it's completely the wrong feel, the wrong tempo, the wrong approach, you know. And he was just a very kind. He's like a layman. 
You know, he didn't play any instruments, right. but he had this huge library of reference in his head. Yeah. They could just drag pull something out of the hat, like like the like this record, like that record, like the feel on this. And so he was, you know, always on the money, really. Okay. Uh, that's what it was about. And uh, basically, feel, we used to go to the studio every day. Sorry. Do Do you feel while you were recording that album um, back then, not now if you're listening, but back yeah. then while you were recording, do you feel that uh, they gave you the freedom to be you? And and yeah, yes, I would say so. I mean, the basic thing, it, it, it just comes, it just comes at you. Okay, yeah. You know, you basically go in the studio. We had another, we had a kit set up to record. We had another kit set up around a piano informally, just to kind of get some idea of the song. Because our first introduction to the songs was there in the studio. Oh wow! Wow. You know, we didn't, we didn't have charts. So we're, we're, we're what we called which is, we refer to head charts, you know. Right, right. You learn on the job. Wow. Went there, and, and then, you know, there was some discussion, some kind of, you know, do this feel, that feel, uh, maybe don't come into that verse. Right, right, right. And when right. you went to the when you went to your string, ready to record, you basically had about three goes, to, and then you'd wow. move on. Wow. You wouldn't do anything. Because he's doing a, a commit, he's, he's committing to, he's committing the vocal, so he's a very spontaneous guy, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I think something of that is captured in most of his recordings. And uh, I have immense, you know, regard for him for doing that because most people I work with, they, the vocal is the last thing they commit. Yeah. You know, when they've got the, so when you're playing, you're trying to surmise what the song is, and they're going first verse, same as the, same as the se second verse, same as the first, and right, maybe right, right, yeah, 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 yeah. All those kind of rather, you know. Um, flaccid kind yeah. of ideas, you know, and they just kind of produce it in the head while you're playing, and the bass player might not be s secure about his part yet, or a thing, you know, the whole thing's very fluid. Right. But of course, back in, in the days of analog, the drums, you have to commit the drums. Right. Because yes. It's, it's very difficult to edit drums. Not so, not so difficult now in the digital era. Yeah, yeah, era. yeah. Back then. But, but before, yes. you know, if you hit a cymbal, Yes. Somewhere it's still, although the actual sonic sound of it, your your relevance to it, your the way you re, kind of relate to it, absolutely, yeah, you know it's gone. Yes, but if you you hear something, you know, you hear in the decay of the symbol. Yes. Well, what was that? Yes. I know. about you remember a guy called Nick Lowe? Yes. Nick, I used to work with him, and he's a very funny guy, and he, he he's a great producer. Nick Lowe is. And he's telling me this story about um, he was when you work on a record, you know, I sound like one track, you know, and you're producing it. You're not just playing on it; you're producing it. So you're responsible for all the decisions that right. that feed into this thing that you eventually hear as a piece of music. Right, right. You right. know, so he knows if it's a tambourine or clave or bass, and he knows oh, I've got to fix that bass. That's a mistake there. Got to drop him in, drop him out, and to, and where the girls are, you know. So he's he's mixing this thing, and it's got strings on it in the choruses. This this track doesn't matter what track it is. Right. The way he tells it, and he said he stops, stops and says, "Did you hear that? What? There's something there, something there in in the second verse. What are you talking about? There's a funny noise in the second verse. <laughs> Just before the chorus, and the guys went, 
I don't know. He said, there is, there is, there is. So they go from all the usual suspects. Right. The, the, the keyboard players do that. The squeaky stool on the drummer, you know. No, it's not that. It's got to be the pedal. No, it's not that. He says, says, oh, just put all the tracks up and we'll see what it is. There it is. There it is. He says, it's on the strings. He said, but the strings aren't in this bit. He said, yeah, but there it is, you know. And what it was, they, they, they had this string section. Right. And they only played in the chorus. And they'd actually taken and used um, what they call a rehearsal, uh, uh, you know, the first take. Right, yeah, yeah, yes, was. yes. That's, that, that'll do, that's it, that's great. You want to do it again? No, that's fantastic. Because what had happened was this. They are so professional that they're having a conversation these two guys, you know. And one <laughs> Seriously? Said, oh, my Lord. <laughs> is, is that your magazine of Caravan Monthly on the floor there? He said, yes. He said, I've got a caravan. He said, how have you? He <laughs> said, yes. And then there's this beautiful pause, like two bars, two, three, four, two, two, three. And they play, like, all three chorus. Did you say you've got a caravan? <laughs> yes, I've been wet. Oh, in London, really? Oh, yeah, oh right, you know. my Lord. Oh, well, we got fed up with that. <laughs> oh, my Lord. Beautiful. <laughs> I must try wax. <laughs> And it was all recorded. It was on the recording, but oh, in fairness to the gosh. section, it, it, was, it wasn't... Um... Hang on. Yeah. I can't see you now. Cancel. Cancel. There we are. Yeah. Um, now, hold yeah, on. You're upside down. You need to turn okay. the iPad. Turn the iPad? On. Yeah. There you go. Uh, nope. No. There we go. That's it. No. Oh, no. There we go. That's it. That's it. That's it. Yeah. You there you go. Something. So, um, in fairness to them, though, you know, it was it was a run through. Right. And also, you know, you know it was um, they did leave the gaps. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Because there are stories of orchestras like. With Andre Andre Previn, who died recently, yeah, yes. um, it was very unionised over here. You know, a session is three three hours. Yes, and he, he wanted to rehearse something, and it went over the three hours. And he was looking at his notes, and when he got up, when he looked up, they're gone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I first started recording in Italy, <laughs> they got white coats. Oh you my know. gosh. Oh. They came the white coats like little chemists, right? And started doing things to your drums. Leave my drums alone, you know? <laughs> and they were just very unionised, you know. Yes, yes, it is. Yeah. So and the uh, BBC was pretty much the same with Dire Straits. You know, we the, did something like the Whistle Test. The, the and, uh, which one? Old Grey Whistle Test. Yeah. Okay. The long-running uh, alternative music program on the on the BBC. Um, not a popular, not a popular music program. A more right. kind of 
alternative, like alternative comedy is today, alternative music. And uh, we were doing something there, and uh, we, we were invited up to the control room to, to listen to the sound to see if they they were you know capturing essence of whatever we thought we were. Right. And uh, he said, "You happy with that sound?" And then we said, "Yeah." Um, can we hear the backing vocals? And he said, oh, are the backing vocals? <laughs> <laughs> we just performed it. <laughs> I mean, all, that, all those days have gone now, you know, it's all... Oh, all, all gosh. Yes. No, but you couldn't, you couldn't touch stuff. Oh, It's gosh. a bit like the unions in, in, in America with the, the load-ins and the load-outs. Yes, know? yes, that's funny. Uh, so let me ask you this before we are going to touch the dire straits. So back to the slow train coming. So... Now the when the recording is finished and and the album is out, do you like the outcome? Do you like what you? Oh what yeah. You heard? Uh, yeah, you do. Okay, uh, of course I do. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I really enjoy playing with Tim, Tim Drummond. Okay, yeah. You know, he's the kind of under the radar guy. You know, he, he just very quietly got on with what he did. But what was really curious about that that as you didn't take any notice of him, but once you start to listen repeatedly to what he'd done, as people, you know, maybe put on another guitar or something, you know, yeah, it, it suddenly it all comes alive, and it's it's, it's a really fascinating way of, of playing that he has, you know, and he's very experienced. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed playing playing with him, you know. Yeah. And, and, and you know it's 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 amazing because I, I was never uh, a Bob Dylan fan uh, back in the day, and I think Slow Train Coming was the first time the first I've heard uh, of Bob, and I think this is the only album that I can actually listen to, because everything is very musical in this album. Yeah, it's very musical. You know the 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 rhythm section, the guitars. I mean even even his his singing. I think his singing is so shining on that album, maybe because of the musician behind him. It's a yeah, very well, beautiful well, album. Barry, you know, you know really what, what really is the, the real kind of bedrock of that is Barry on the keyboards, Barry Beckett. Yeah. And he, he was... Um, he, he's like that southern thing where he, yep. he grew up playing in the church. Yeah. yeah. And he's got that... It's got that thing. You always know when you're kind of floating Barry's butt because he, he played to the side and it with his yeah yeah yes. a little bit, a bit like Richard T and all those other guys. It just they're so cool on when, once they're on the at their place of work. Right. Yes. You know? Yeah. And the yeah. studio was nice. Too. It, it wasn't for me. It wasn't. It wasn't the one I called a rhyming Simon, as in the Paul Simon album. Right. It wasn't that muscle. Show. It moved to a yes, they uh, did. They moved a few times. Yes, by the Tennessee River. Yes, but uh, it was like in its own compound, and they had a remote control to drive into the compound, and then a yeah. remote control to drive into the building. And the first thing I saw in the car park was a punch bag. Huh. And I said, "What's that for, Barry? Punch bag?" And, and because he was, he said, "Well, because I'm the MD." on the floor of the studio. Right. You know, sometimes you have sessions where you just don't know what's going on, you know. And you, you actually they only talk to you through the glass, through the fishbowl. Right. And yes. then you interpret it and 
tell the guys, you know. And sometimes they said, we, we would take five. Can we just take five, please? They would all run to the punch bag and beat the shit out of it. Just, just, just get rid of the kind of frustration and, and this yes. on you either. Some of the guys, because, you, you know, when you're successful like that, you know, you get a lot of people just come because, well, that's the place to go, so we're going there as well. Yes. You know, yes. they expect you to probably, I don't know, bring something to it that's actually not there yeah. in, in the actual song or whatever. Yeah. But there are loads of stories about Muscle Shoals that are just... It's a legend. It's a legendary place, and uh, you know, in fact, there is a a, a documentary of uh, the guy who started Muscle Shoals, and it was Rich before, Hall. Which Rich Hall. Rich Hall, but he was that was at Fame Studios. Yes, exactly. That's the the Fame Studio. Table. Yes. But one more funny story about yeah, yeah, yeah. Muscle Shoals. Um, there was there was. Um, there was a kind of social area where they had a little pool table mm-hmm. and you could get coffee intravenously, whatever it was. Right. And these little like old church pews. So you could actually sit in a pew and there was notionally a bit of privacy. And I was there one day and behind me were these two guys that were the one was the janitor and the other guy was just fixed stuff. Yeah. Right. And they're talking in that southern draw, you know, and hey Red, what do you got, Jared? Said that I've been reading in them their newspapers, you know. Oh, what have you been reading? He said, he said, uh, he said, them their airplanes. He said, yeah, they fly in the sky, Red. He said, yeah, I know that, Judge. He said, don't know. And he said, he said, well, I've been reading. They they can fly at six hundred miles an hour. He said. Yeah, he said, this, how do you think they take off, Jared? He said, he says, no, he said, listen, he said, if they can fly at 600 miles an hour, he said, how can they ever be late? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I carried that ever from the oh, time I had it. I nearly choked on my coffee. I just put it so funny on any, any level, you know, oh, on any level. That's hilarious. Is he is he for real? Is he genuinely bemused, or is he just having a laugh? You know, <laughs> you never know. <laughs> no, you never know. Oh my God! But yeah, there's so many great stories about Muscle Shoals. I was actually there in 2003, oh. um, right before they sold it. Um, oh really? Yes, and uh, I, I remember walking in and and. We took a tour into the uh, 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 the recording rooms and all. I mean, it's there's so many great albums recorded there. Yeah. Uh, even at Fame, even at Fame before Muscle Shoals. I mean, the, all the artists. It's just it's just mind blowing. And the sound that came out from these studios is just unparalleled. Yeah, they did it twice over because they moved. You know, yes. Moved from Rick Hall to their own place. Right. Which Wexler said yes. he would. I kind of sponsored them for a year if they wanted to, you know, right. get away from Rick Hall. Because I remember Wexford saying to Rick Hall in the control room while the guys were on the floor, excuse me, at fame, you know, you should, you should really pay these guys proper wage, you know, they're, they're, they're great. He said, keep them hungry, keep them hungry, Jerry. And so, so you know, I think it was a bit ill feeling, but it, it seems to be okay now. Yeah. Probably for the last years, it's. It's probably all come full circle, and they're all, you know, nobody died, so right, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. They're all singing from the same page again, 
But it's a really interesting area, all that, because there's a lot of stuff going down there. Yes. There's lots of musicians don't suddenly a just lot. come in and yes. You know, yes. do one thing on a track and yeah. one thing on another track and... It's just fabulous, really. You know, uh, uh, you know, and I and I recommend people to go and just uh, uh, look at the history and see the albums that were recorded in in the studio, and they will be shocked. The uh, uh, you know albums that you've been probably listening to for years and decades, and you didn't even know that they were recorded over there. You know, I mean, yeah, the list is just long. I mean, it's going to take us four hours just to complete the list, but. So let me ask you this. So, so we, we, we finished with uh, Slow Train Coming, which now brings us, you know, maybe just a few years uh, uh, prior to that, um, Dire Straits. So, well, we did two albums before Slow Train Coming. Right. Because the Communique album was produced by Wexler yes. and Beckett. And that's how Mark and I got kind of recommended for... Dylan album. Do you uh, do you think that you know? For me, when I'm listening to Communique and then uh, Slow Train coming, I see the the resemblance in uh, especially in the drum. Am I right? Well, that's what I was at that time. You know, it's the same kit. Right. The same big kit made by a guy that died last year called Eddie Ryan. It's like okay. a local a local London. Drum manufacturer. Okay. And I had pretty big, I don't know why, I think we were going through a stage where we were starting to play in bigger halls. So I had bigger sizes for some reason. You know, that came, gave that big sort of sound. But it was very specifically for that kind of a style. You know, you couldn't then re reconfigure the drums and tune it different to, to fit into another kind of format. You know, it was very uh, big. Big okay. sounds. Okay. You have to play open. You have to play open to a certain, to oh. a certain extent. Okay. But if your drums are very uh, flat in a way, like right. the boomings, you can't put too much information there because it begins. It's it's, it's it's it starts to blur. Right. So there's always that element of it, and I I, I wouldn't have known that it, it, it. I'm sure Wexler and Beckett or these guys would be great for. For this album, right? But I don't know what they're working on. I just know that they had an understanding that Wexler and Beckett were going at some stage were going to uh, produce a Bob Dylan album, and Bob Dylan had the same thing going on, you know. Right. So, right, it just fell into place that this was the slot right. we were available only for 10 days, yep, and it was it, it was done, right? You know? Yeah, because you know, uh, and even back in the day, you know, uh, uh years and years ago. Of course, I've listened to Communique before I knew of Slow Train Coming. Uh, but when I, I listened to Slow Train Coming, to me, the, the rhythm section, and especially the drums, sound very familiar. It has, it has that same feel. Do you, it's warm, isn't do it? Do you agree with warm... me? Would you say? The, do you agree? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I do, I do. I see some similarities, but I think it's just a very warm yes. kind of. Yes. Yes. I don't think it's any different to the way I approach stuff. I, I, I like to be, I like to be involved in some kind of conversation. Yes. You know? I like to punctuate right. stuff. I, right. I, 
sometimes it's difficult. You, you see some bands and, and, and the drums is almost like a service. Yes, you know? right. I've played in some, in some situations where I thought, you know, if I stop playing now, it wouldn't really matter, except that they'd all look idiotic because they're playing so loud, you know, and so, you know, it's just, what am I doing here? I'm just, right. I'm just like a monkey beating up and beating up <laughs> down this drum. I'm not getting anything from it, you know, other than it just provides some service for them to, right. to function, yes. you know, because it's rock and roll. But, um, so, yeah, so, I mean, so, glad to be involved. Yeah, so, so the start of Dire Straits uh, for you was, was that a coincidence that just happened? Uh, because, you know, prior to Dire Straits, I look at the list of, of all the stuff that you were involved. Um, what made you say, okay, I, I want to I wanna be involved in this and, and, and see where it goes? What, what, what got you... Uh, because at that stage in my career, I was playing with lots of people. Right. Different. No, I wasn't committed to one pursuit or another. I was right. playing with another band, a kind of country rock band called Charlie Dawes Back Pocket, and I was still doing that. Right. But the key element was that having uh, worked with this guy, Rod Clements, with Bert Yansh, you know, the folk guy. Right, right. Um, introduced to a guy called Simon Cow. Now, oh, Lindisfarne yeah. were a from Newcastle, yeah. And Sai had a Simon Cow. He, he ended up living in Toronto, okay. uh, the latter stages of his life. He died as well recently. Um, and he he was a Geordie, so so and he rented rooms to musicians. So so, it, I mean, I was tired of renting rooms in London, trying lying about my circumstances because right. you couldn't practice, you couldn't rent a place as a musician. You know, it was just right. already becoming. Problematic, you know. People thought, oh, you know, uh, wild, late nights, noisy, you know, right. unreliable rent payers, all that stuff. So, so it was great for me because he understood it, being a musician himself. Now, being a Geordie, he just just happened that Mark came around one day. I never met him from Adam. Okay. And he just, so I had a, a, an old Revex, a Revox two-track reel-to-reel. Right. And Mark wanted to record some ideas on the tape. Which he duly did. Cited so a bit of you know limited engineering, and I just said, "Oh, I could put some stuff on that, you know, some percussion, give it a bit more, you know, kind of atmosphere Energy. about it." Right, right, right. Yes. And that was that was the end of it, really. And he just went away, and I just enjoyed myself for an afternoon, had something to do, you know. And then he just came back at some random point later, maybe it was six months. And said, "Do you remember me? I've, I've got a band together," and I I went off to Deptford where. John and David were, and we just started rehearsing stuff, and it was just just another thing I was doing, and it just huh. and it kind of it it put down roots. Okay. And the real the real kind of thing that kicked it into to gear was the fact that John had a share in a in a an old uh, record shop, sold record old vinyl records, right. and they they. It was a shop in Kentish Town or Camden, I believe, and it, it took its name from a radio show, which was the DJ was a guy called Charlie Gillette. Yeah, Charlie Gillette, yeah. Or Gillette, I, I always forget which way you pronounce it. Gillette. Gillette, Gillette. Charlie Gillette, apparently. Right. And he was a he was a 
DJ stroke rock and roll chronicle. He, he's got books. He wrote. He's very much kind of. He was held in high regard. He had this hour and a half radio show. Now we were been rehearsing, so we decided. I said, let's make a demo, and uh, we went to this studio in cheap studio in Islington or uh, the area of Islington right. or Arsenal. Right, right. And John had this idea to to play it to Charlie Gillett, the, the DJ, for, for some kind of reaction, some critique, whatever it was. Charlie's very cute. He, he, he stood on his door and said, I will listen to this, boys, but I won't listen to it when you're there, which is always cute. That's a good lesson for anybody. You know? yeah. never, listen, never listen to stuff when people are there, because exactly. if it's good, it's great. But if it's not good, it's awkward. Yes, very awkward. <laughs> you yes. got to listen to all of it, and you think, yes. God, this is dreadful. Yes. You've got to show them respect and listen to all of it, and you go, God, this is like pulling teeth. It's awful. You, know, <laughs> you have to say something. So you're always trying to concoct something in your head. You've already not, you're not listening to it anymore. So he was cute like that. And uh, at the weekend, and, and the other thing was, he's really cute. This tape that we gave to him, we'd already played it to some of our friends in the Deptford area. And it, well, it's quite nice that is, isn't it? We played it on our best system that we had. Right. So we played it in its best environment. You know, it wouldn't right. get any better than that. Yeah. It, oh yeah, that's quite nice that, you know, just non-committal. Unbeknownst to us, we went away and Charlie actually did play one of the tracks, which is Sultan's, on his radio show, you know. But we wow. didn't tell us that we were out of town. Oh, so wow. The, so when we, the same people who said, oh, it's quite nice, that tape, isn't it? They were all over it. So, we heard you on the radio. It's fantastic. It's brilliant, you know. Oh, wow. And of course, they, they heard the same tape on a small transistor radio. Yeah. But it, because... It, because it's played in the radio, it's given credibility, you know, yeah. beyond what it actually is. Right. So, um, so that's what happened. And then he got in touch with us and said, look, I played you, I played you a song on the radio. In fact, when you left that day, I, I, I played the tape while I was compiling my running list, because it has to all fit into a 90-minute format with adverts and stuff, you know, whatever it was, or, tra or jingles, yes. or trailers. Right. So... He was, became enchanted by Sultans, and he spent the rest of the afternoon, because it's six minutes long, trying to dump some tracks he'd already earmarked to play to accommodate playing Sultans. And he said, I played it, and I got this really, I got this unprecedented response from a record company, from a lawyer, and he gave us these numbers. Wow. And that started, like, the, the momentum which led to the record deal. Okay. And then it, then it like, uh, well... I, I, I'll have to commit to this now because I can't accommodate two diaries all the time with right. Charlie and uh, Dire Straits. I mean, I don't even think we were called Dire Straits initially, but we were, were called Dire Straits by the time the record company Overtures started. Gotcha. Okay. And then um, I think I, I read somewhere um, about your, your history you are more from a jazz background, right? Um, not really, you know. No. I think I kind of aspire to be a jazz player. Okay. But it, it, it back from, I don't know, just being, not being a kind of in one area. Okay. You know? I, I, for a while I played in the, there was a big folk rock boom prior to Dire Straits okay. in England, started by Fairport Convention. Convention and Richard Thompson, you know, who's in Fairport Convention. I think he lives in LA now. 
Okay. You, you heard of another guy, Richard Thompson? Yes, yes. Yep. Phenomenal guitar player. Yes. And uh, he, they started the, the, the whole kind of movement of having rhythm sections in folk bands. Okay. So I played that for a while, and I did uh, comments in Bert Jansch and a guy called Ralph McTell and Magna Carta, you know. So, so I was kind of all around that area of music because people would phone me up. Okay. You know, and he wasn't kind of involved in right. those days. He didn't have a man. He, just, he didn't have the internet. He didn't, he didn't have mobile phones. Right, exactly. You know, you just yeah. knew who you knew, and, and they knew who they knew, and it kind of, if it overlapped... You, you hooked up with some new people. Right. So, and to play in folk rock, you, you're introducing an element of rock music, music, but it's not, it's not, you know, the big guns. Right. So you have to a bit finesse. And I think that's where, where the jazz, you know, connection comes. Okay. It's a lighter touch. Okay, yeah, it is. And you symbols and things, whereas rock is much more the bass and bass drum and snare and the beat, you know, symbols seem to be something you do because they're there. Right. Okay. And I always wanted to, you know, the symbols to me are much more important, you know, than the function they're given in rock and roll, you know. So when the double snare came for you, was that always? The sorry? The double snares. You have two snares, right? Do you, don't you play with two snares? No, no. I mean, I, I play now. I have a, I have a drum, drum, uh, a, a snare drum on the side, just oh. for a different sound. But most drummers do that now. It's just, a, it's just, a, you just run with whatever is uh, the current movement of stuff. You know. I mean. Okay, so it's not something that you used before. No, no, okay. no. Okay, okay. I've got, got quite a few snare drums, and I try and take two or three to a session to to get different sounds because it, right. it's predominant. Snare drum is the drum you hear the most. Right. You play most, you know, it provides the, the offbeat and whatever it is, and the tom-toms just usually in fills and stuff to signify a, a new section or something. So, so there is that element. So that's going to bring me to, you know, th this this show, it's called It's All About a Tone. So, you know, I'm I want to talk about tone. And people think that, Oh, drum doesn't have a tone, you know. It just you just bang on the drums and that's it. But uh, I don't think it's true. Drums do have a tone. So can you give us your take on what you see or what you think or how to achieve a good tone with your drum well, set? Yeah, I mean, I like to use uh, two skins, you know, a top skin and a bottom skin. Some people don't. Okay. They just have the top skin and take the one off. Um, it's a bit more involved with two skins. I just look for, and here's, I think the secret is this, is that I think you're used to playing drums. You stand, you're away from the instrument. Your, your, your head is here and the, the drum is here. Right. And I think you've got, your ears are very selective about what they want to hear. Okay. If, if, if you get the sound that gets close to what you think you want, that's fine. But if you actually put your ears down and listen more intently, like a, like a microphone does. Right. You would hear a lot of, a lot of kind of uh, after sound, strange nuances, strange rings, okay. buzzes. And it's all about the true tuning of the drum. You, know, you have to be consistent with how you tune the, the head. You can't have 
the head tight over this area and loose here. And you, I look for the the same note all around the all drum. Around. Okay. Uh, it gives you a true kind of tone then. And it's just a question of how high you want it or how low you want it. But you have to be true to tune the drum truly. Okay. You can't have the drum sounding like a C over here and a sort of D over here because that will, although you can mask it by right. the sound of the, you know, the snares and stuff, it, it, what will happen is the microphone will hear all those idiosyncrasies and just faithfully reproduce them in the in the control room. And then you start to get into a minefield of, you know, just panicking tuning and okay. stuff. And uh, one of the things that I learned about with working with Shelly Yakis was to have, he suggested I use these really cheap hi-hats to, so that the sound wouldn't bleed okay. down other microphones, you know, because, of course, the, the, the idea of drums is to, to have good, try and get as much separation as possible so that you can raise or lower some of the drums in the mix without compromising the overall sound of, okay. the, of, of the drum. You're trying right. to isolate, the, if the microphone's here and you want to hit that drum, you don't want the sound of this drum going down that microphone. I mean, it's an, an inevitable consequence of what you do, but you try and minimise all that stuff. Okay. Um, so there is that. Um, and then it's just, just a question of being uh, methodical, really. You, you have to, you know, you, you have to have it in your mind what kind of sound you're looking for. I like a nice decay. Okay. You know, okay. You know, it's on the tom-toms. And... Then it's down to how you how you how you play, you know. It's if the you, actual the there's, actual there's player. A weak area yes. drum where you play, and then it, yeah. if you miss that, then it, it it still sounds the same, but it doesn't. It's not a sweet spot. Yes. Anymore. Um, I often remember Barry Beckett told me to please play not on the edge of the cymbal, play in nearer to the bell because it gives more clarity. Huh. Okay. Cymbal stuff like that, and some people just ask you to do stuff and you, you you do it because they have more experience than you or, or it's, what, it's what they were looking for and you, all you're doing is trying to give them what they want. Right. Okay. Okay. Now, is that something that you learned through your career or is it something you developed right from the beginning? You can, you can do it at home. You know, you can do it at home a lot. You know, if you... Most people want to play. Yeah. You know, they, they, they right. just go, oh, right. I'll get on and play. Right. Sounds sounds near enough for me, right. but it's, it's when you go in the studio, it, it's it's very unforgiving, you know. It just yes, that's, that's the true thing in what the studio. You do, yes. you know? Yeah, and I think it's a highly selective. You 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 edit out all the things that aren't particularly right. yeah feeling. You yeah. know, the microphone doesn't do that because you know it's ten thousand pounds worth of ribbon and stuff, and it's just yes. that's what you play. And you know, there and, and it's true. You you said it earlier. You know, when you're playing live, you probably don't hear a lot of the things. But when you go to the studio, <laughs> you hear, and you get the true of what you're playing, the mistakes, the the tone. I yeah. mean, it's like that's the real thing when you're in the studio. But I remember seeing the Who uh -huh. in the first first days. You know, at the, the yeah. famous Mark right. Club, London. That would be round about. Um, I can't explain. Was it was a hit, right? And they, I think they were, yeah, they, they were called the Who. So just a really 
small club, probably has about 300 people tops. Right. And, and they were so exciting, you know, to, um, to see them play. But it's almost like a, a dialogue. It's going by you all the time. You know, you don't analyse, you just enjoy the ever-moving moment. Then I, I decided years and years later that I would have a, I must have a Best of Who album. Yeah. And, and just because it just, uh, you know, I've just got, it's just a memory for me and I wanted it kind of crystallised in some sound. And uh, I found I couldn't play it very much because something like I Can't Explain, it's got this wonderful visceral quality about it. But within within about eight bars, you know, the, the, they've added a tambourine and the tambourine and Moon's snare drum are like, they're in separate time zones sometimes, right, you know. Right. They're not together. They're there's this kind mm -hmm. of lay, you know. And he he did have a reputation for being a bit kind of eccentric and and uh, wayward in his playing, but live it was he was exciting. So right. You know, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, there's it's... always that live against. Recording. Yeah, you know, it yeah. says a lot. And, you know, you see that also in the uh, guitar player world. You know, you might going to see a, a, a guitar player that it's phenomenal on stage, but then you bring him to the studio and you are not getting the same experience because he all of a sudden hears maybe a lot of the mistakes that are going on that pretty much evaporate uh, when you play live, you know. and, and Yeah. And I know it happened to me. A studio is yeah. a very, but the thing very... really is not allow any kind of... Uh, the secret is not to allow any um, kind of uh, sterile element seep into the recording. You know, you have to... Um, like uh, This project I'm working on at the moment called Slim... It's got a working title of Slim Pickings. It's, it's right, that was... Yeah. Me going back to my old when I first started and trying to cherry pick some of the records that we used to listen to and eventually play because most bands in those days were cover bands yeah okay it was only when the Beatles started to right. you know, get into um, Rubber Soul and Revolver yeah that it became a, you know a done thing to write your own material right. so and most of the material is rhythm and blues based and it's old 50s and early 60s records and if you listen to them, it's all in mono. I don't think there yeah. might be some stereo. Right. But you, you've got to factor in that studios in those days weren't they weren't multi-track. So they capture a performance. Yes. And sometimes there are mistakes. Yeah. But what they what they tend to kind of settle upon is a wonderful ambient sound. It might not have all the detail and all the yes. kind of uh, high fidelity in it but it captures a sort of atmosphere. And that's what I want to do with, with, this, uh, with this band that I'm currently re you know, rehearsing with. And, so you, so uh, you guys we, rehearsing to, uh, are you guys going to release an album or at least try to record? No, no, no. It won't be. I, don't, I wouldn't release a covered, covered album unless, unless we're going to do a Zoom gig in January. Okay. And uh, we're going to see what happens from that, see if now that reaction. Zoom gig you're gonna do, it's gonna be available for for anybody who wants to see. Oh yeah, it's definitely. gonna be on the internet. It's gonna be on YouTube. Okay. It's gonna be on the YouTube. So okay, so I'll make sure that people follow so they can see it, and that's gonna be January, right? 
Yeah, go to Pick With is official. No, okay. Pick Facebook page. Oh, you can go to Pick With is founding member of Dire Straits okay. Facebook. I guess I can I can get yeah I can get from uh, from from Linda the all the information uh, later on. In fact, speaking of speaking of uh, Linda, uh, which is you know I always called the wife as the boss of the house. Um, yeah. So, yes. <laughs> uh, I somebody told me that she was also. Uh, Hello. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. <laughs> so somebody whispered to me that, that Linda was also some sort of your boss way back during the Dire Straits era. Yes, she was. Okay. I worked for um, the management at Bicknell. Yes. Um, when he decided to manage Dire Straits, he was a massively important agent in London. Right. Who used to tour a lot of American bands over in London. And I'd worked with him over the years, on and off. And he and, was a drummer um, too, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And he said to me one day, I'm going to start managing a band. Okay. And I said, okay, what are they called? And he said, Dire Straits. I said, I'm not working for a punk band. <laughs> because I thought it sounded like... <laughs> They're not punk. They're not punk. And um, then, oh. then I started working for him, and that was that, really. So I guess it can we say it was a love at first sight? Yeah, it was a bit. Really. It, sure, yeah. it sure looks like it, you know. I mean, we are. No. What are we, like 40 something <laughs> years later now? <laughs> 40 or something, yeah. I don't know. It's so many years. We have a very complicated story. Which you need about five hours to go into, so we won't go into It's that. very convoluted. Yeah. Well, we, we might we might gonna do a part two for this for this for this <laughs> yeah, show. Excuse me, my dogs. The dogs are coming in and they're gonna knock everything over. I'm moving no, them away. That's okay. So before <laughs> before we uh, we end uh, the uh, the show with uh, a few last questions from me, I actually have. Oh, look at that doggy. <laughs> What's the name of the dog? Tulip. Tulip? Tulip, yeah. Aww. I call her Tulip. One Aww. of our grandchildren named her. Aww. We have, <laughs> um, we have a dog and five cats. Oh, I hope that works. Well, actually, it works wonderful. You know, we, uh, um, the, the dog was a puppy, so we introduced the dog to the kitties uh, slowly. And it's wonderful. Um, yeah. But they're like, you know, the animals are the best yeah. family you can have. That's like one of the, uh, one of the touch. Oh, there the we go. Stuff. There's another one. Uh-oh. Okay. I don't, think, I don't think that that one is happy you're holding the other one. Hang on. Yeah, there we go. So, um, yeah. so I do I have uh, questions from people um in fact i received a few questions from uh israel actually okay and um there's a lot of people who actually like you in israel and i don't know if yeah. you know that or not uh so a few questions that they wanted to know of course has to do with the dire straits uh one question was um what were your thoughts and you don't have to answer it if you don't want to about the other albums 
after you left the band and your thoughts of the album were you during the band? Um, well, to be honest, so I, I don't listen to the stuff after after I went. I, I went to, after I left. I, we went to see John, John Illsley, right. you know, in the house in near Brighton, outside of London, right. big house. I went down there just a social visit, and within about an hour, I just thought, oh, now that we. Now I'm not in the same band. We don't have anything to talk about. Huh. Okay. <laughs> you know, just a realization that you know I, I wasn't particularly interested in what they would do. I'd left the band, so I didn't want to know that they had a rehearsal. I wasn't particularly didn't kind of intrigue me. Right. I just so I just wanted to be a social call, you know. So, right. And to see Linda wanted to see his his wife, and it, you know. But it's just I just felt like oh god, that's a bit of a shock. Now that I'm not. Now that we don't have the band in common, we're actually very different people. Oh. And, uh, but we're good mates with Alan. Alan. But uh, I'm, I'm mates with Alan, Alan Clark and, yes. and Hal. Okay. But uh, of the founding members, you know, I don't really have a lot of kind of, well, I don't have any contact with them. So okay. any kind of uh, link to to them. And what, I, what I've heard is just basically on the radio when it comes on the radio. Okay. I think, well, that's, that's, that's my... That's okay. That's okay. I think, and it's, you know, uh, it's doing well. I'm glad it's doing well for them. Because, right. you know, I don't, want it, I don't want it all go tits up because I've left, you know. I just, right, right, I don't right, have right. grind about that, but, you know. But I, to, to, really, honestly, I don't, I don't have any kind of rapport with them. And so right, I don't okay. feel... Listen to, I don't have any of the albums. Right. I, I don't... So I don't listen... And, and of the albums that I played, you know, I, uh, I is I there any have, favorite of the albums you played? Well, I have. A, I, I like making movies because it's, it's got one side where the Skate Away, Romeo and Juliet, and yes, Tumble Love, I think. Yes. It's just we did work really hard on the drum sound on that, and it was a little bit different. Um, and the drums, the drums are kind of have these little features, you know. Talking about Skate Away. Yes, yes away it's a very interesting song. Little yeah, kind of drum uh, uh, cameo in, in halfway through Tunnel Love. Yes, you know? yeah, and it's just it just has these little things that you know you think yeah I'm I'm really pleased with that you know okay that's very interesting and then if I go back to the I like Once Upon a Time in the West a lot oh it's yeah got really yes it's got a great atmosphere about yes. it follow me home but the, the the one I really sort of went under the radar a bit for me a lot was the, the first album. I've sometimes listened to that on the headphones and I thought, wow, I didn't realise it was had that much atmosphere and about depth. it. And depth. You know, There's a lot of depth wild, in it. It's got such a kind of charm about it and it's just, you know, it's just enchanting. It just transports you. Right. And it's not me playing drums anymore now i'm just listening to a piece of music right yes and just what i like about it is that I, I i don't i'm never kind of um pushed out of that kind of almost dreamlike oh what, what was that you know i don't have any of those moments right. there's nothing yes. on there that's superfluous right it's just sort of poise and and the stories of course 
it's that first album thing, you know. You 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 got Mark who's, who's selecting stuff from all the years up to that point that right. he's written on, you know. Right. So you you just cherry pick all the best ones, the ones that work the best, the ones that you feel most comfortable with, the ones that you feel most familiar with, I guess. Right. Then the second always always the the kind of panic. Yeah. Because you've chosen, you you you've used all your best songs. Now you've got to write a whole album in six months. Yeah. You know, and uh, I like Once Upon a Time in the West and a couple of the other things, but you, you, you do get to feeling that it kind of, the intensity or that, it just drops off. I like the album, but it, um, it wasn't so successful. Not that that bothers me. That, that I don't feel that is a, it is a so benchmark strange. Me, what, of what I feel about it. You know, it doesn't change anything in that respect. It's, I still have songs that I like on there. and uh, You know, it's very it strange have- that, that, that Communique had a less success than the first one because to me, um, although, you know, the first album, it's almost like a raw. It's raw. Everything is, is kind of, of alive. Um, I find Communique um, to, I actually like it better. Yeah. Oh wow. Yes. Um, and and uh, and again, I'm not talking as a guitar player. I'm just talking about yeah. as as somebody who listened to a piece of music, that it's all come together. I actually like Communique a little bit better than than the, oh, the first. Good. You know, the first good. one. Uh, it's, Probably me, part part and parcel of the thing is that we we played more together as a band, as a unit. So you, you develop these kind of and that relation yep you know and so you've always got that element that feeds feeds into it right you know and then you've got Barry playing playing some keyboards who's the first bona fide okay. keyboard player yeah played right right and right. after that yeah I was both Mark and I we started to campaign for a keyboard player okay yeah. David and John were just really against it okay yeah, they, they felt we had a good formula We mustn't change it. And I go, but you know, we need keyboards, you know. Yeah. We need keyboards. Can't you see where the song line's going when we're playing live? Oh, no, we don't want keyboards. We don't want keyboards. Yeah. So there was this exploration with, when we did Making Movies, we had Roy Bitten on yes. keys. Yes, yeah. East Which he was band. from the loved, Bruce Springsteen band, right? Yeah, yes. East Street Band. Yeah. He was a lovely guy. Yeah. And he played, played his heart out, you know, it was great. And uh, then it was like a fait accompli then. The, the, yeah. Because... Because the keyboards became an essential, instead of being uh, colors right. and, and uh, what we call pads and a little bit of right. you know, filler, filler right, right, smooth. Right. Yes. Because he had parts which became an integral part of the song, yeah. then it was a, you know, we had to get a keyboard. And then we got Alan Clark, who was just a fabulous, fabulous yes, player. Yes. Alan is just a phenomenal musician. Yeah, and he, he became my soulmate in the band, you know, because it was the first was? time I had... He became my soulmate. He, yeah. It was the first time first, I, I had somebody who, who was uh, active, you yes. know, outside of the band. You know, we'd play frisbee or we'd go swimming or, you know, and, and the others didn't do any of that. Are you, guys, are, you guys still, are you guys still friends, you and Alan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's great. Right. Yeah. But you know, he's he, a busy boy. You know, it's so funny... 
it's so funny because if I'm looking back, you know, if I'm looking back like 30 years and, 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 and seeing uh, video footages of, of the band, uh, you and Alan always seem to me kind of the, the quiet guys that it's very easy to get along with. Thank you. Thank you. That's what it That's seems right. to me. Am I am I correct, Linda? Yes, sir. And if you watch this space, you might see more of Alan around Pick's new project, but I'm not saying any more. Not this time, but maybe next time. I'm I'm not gonna say anything, but I can't I can't wait seeing it. I would love that. He would love that too. Yeah, he's he's a he seems to be a very great guy, you know. And he's you too always look like every time you see either on stage or maybe uh, um, some studio. I mean, it seems like you guys are down to earth and yeah. very easy to get along with. That's what it seems well, to me. Thank you. You're thank welcome. You, Two last questions. Huh? Uh, you know. What is it? Uh, thank you. I can't say it myself. Oh, you're welcome. I, mean, I never like, learned how to play the trumpet. Listen, like I said in the beginning, I speak the truth. So that, that's it. Uh, another question from Israel, um, uh, a great friend of mine, Sam, he wanted to know um, now that the music industry is changing and, yeah. and, and, we, and you and I already talked about it uh, uh, in, yeah. in the show. Uh, what, are you, what are your thoughts about the, the, the future of music, uh, the way you see it now? That's one question. Well, I mean, I, I'm very apprehensive about it, but, but what I will say is that um, it's the last, the last frontier, really, to, for having music taken away from you is playing live. If, if you could, as long as we can get, get music to, to, to be a live event, which we can't right. even do now with the pandemic. It, right. It's because... Um, I do encounter people who, who think, oh, you didn't stop when you were playing. You didn't make a mistake. You know, well, I did make a mistake. You didn't notice it or whatever. And, and they seem to be quite intrigued by all that because we live in an, an age when everything's automated. There's something to be said. I think there's something great about... I see a drum kit every day. Yeah. And I never tire of looking at it. It's just... I can look at a drum kit and go, wow, yeah, that's just... It's fantastic. You know, right. It's just, yep. Something visceral about it. You know, it's just very basic. It's primal. It's it. It's almost. Uh, it's it's almost like dance. Yeah. It's rhythm. It's 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 conducting. It's you know. It's it's a lot of things for me, and, and I just feel it's so sad that we don't live in an age where people are readily taking up the, the challenge. Right. It, what's worrying me more than anything else is that I used to do some teaching and I've started to see people, doesn't matter whether they were eight or 20, I've got an electric, I've got an electronic drum kit at home. Yeah. And they basically get it because it's a more pragmatic way of playing in high density housing areas. Yes. But basically what happens is when they come to play on a real kit, they can't play. No. It, 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 it's, it's, it's all that electronic thing where 
all the all the surfaces are triggers. It doesn't really matter how you make that contact to, to enable the trigger to give the sound electronically. Yes, yes. When you come on a drum kit, there's far more technique than this primal instrument might kind of initially suggest, you know, and it, they, they can't play and they just give up. Yeah, and you know, and, and I think one of the reasons that, that, that we see that, especially in the younger generation today, is everything is available to them today uh, so fast and so quickly. Yes. If they want something, it takes them a second to just click on the phone and it's there. That's right. So the, the, the uh, you know, you're going to learn how to, uh, to, to play the, the uh, Do, Re, Mi, Fa, Sol, La, Si, Do, and it's going to take you a week. Uh, no, I don't want to do that. So, no. and, and I, I tell you a funny story. I've been, I was teaching guitar for a long time, and one day a mom came to me with her 10-year-old kid, and she said, I need to get my son to the next level because he is professional. And I was like, oh, my God. I love teaching little kids that are professionals. And I said, who was his teacher? Uh, what kind of method he was uh, teaching from? Oh, he, he's perfect on air guitar. You know what air guitar is? And, I, yeah. and, and, and I'm looking at her and I said, uh, say it again? Oh, he, is, he can do everything on air guitar. I mean, he's a professional. And I said, ma'am, do me a favor. I think you need another teacher. I, I can't get him to the next level. He's way beyond me. <laughs> but, but you see that every single day uh, that, that, you know, they, they think that this is the reality. They, they don't accept, okay, I'm going to take my stick and, and, and bang the snare all day for a week to see where is the right tone that I can find on the drum and learn it. They, they can't do it. They just can't. Yeah. You know, it's a shame. I think the last question from Sam was, um, are you available for hire? <laughs> I'm always available. Yeah, always available. So that was, a, that was a serious question. Is that a serious answer? Uh, yeah, of course I'm available. Okay. I'm not a fantastic reader. Okay. You know, I can read, but I'm not a fantastic reader, so. Um, I don't think I don't think he's looking for a reader. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, that, I think they will be happy to hear that too. So, if uh, if by any chance somebody wants to hire you, it's it's information from the what? boss. Yeah. You, uh, the okay. Boss also. The, the boss. <laughs> well. Last question before I let you go, because I'm sure you're busy, and I don't know about you, I had fun, and it's been two hours. Yeah, that's it. Wow. Yes, I and, and, and I can tell you I got way many, many more questions, but I, I don't want to keep you that long. But my last question will be, do you have any hobbies? Hobbies? Uh, I like walking the dogs. Okay. Yeah. And I play, uh, I like reading. And uh, most of the time now, I, I like to play. Um, I just my hobby is playing drums all the time. A lot, you know. It's true. You just, know. <laughs> Somebody I just was looking for that kind of moment when I just feel like 
I could do anything I put my mind to on the drums. It, it, it's it's back to that thing where it's just it's a little bit of physicality. It's a little bit of dance. It's a little bit of Both. you know. It's a little bit of creation. It's a little bit of sound. It, it's. I mean, I, you like boats. I and I like boats. I like boats. And boats. The, yeah. Uh, you boats. mean uh, sailing on boats or building them? No, not building them. I just like just sailing. I, I used to have a sailboat, and I kind of I, I like I like that, the idea of that. But I sold it because it was a a liability. You know. Yes. But uh, listen, it's been great talking to you. You too. So easy. It's so easy to talk to you, and uh, it's, it's not always easy to do that these days. You know. I, I bet, and you know, I'm 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 so glad that you uh, that you uh, uh, were willing to do that. I would love to do that again one day. Um, okay. And then keep well, when us... Slim Picking comes nearer the moment, we'll you know, I'll prod you. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, you can always use my show because one of the things I do in my show, I I play. Uh, new music of anyone that I enjoy and like. So if you have anything, bring it on and we'll play it on. Okay? Thank you very, very, very much. It was a pleasure. You want to say bye to Linda? Linda, we'll stay in touch for sure, okay? Thank you for very, very much. And you guys stay safe. We will. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye bye. was my conversation with Pick Withers, the drummer and the co-founder of Dire Straits. Thank you for listening and hope to see you soon on my next episode. See you soon.